So last week we began the sermon with a question, where do you seek joy? Now this week we're going to continue in the same thing, but I want, to, I want to turn the question just a little bit and put it to you in this way. Where do you seek meaning in life? What's most meaningful to you? Around what do you orient your life and toward what do you run? The Pew Research Center conducted two separate surveys in 2017. They asked the same question in two different ways. They, they asked an open-ended question about where Americans sought meaning. And then they asked some forced choice questions, kind of multiple choice questions that, that got at the same thing, the same question. And across both surveys, the most popular answer was, was clear and consistent. Americans are most likely to mention family when asked what makes life meaningful. Didn't matter whether it was the open-ended question or the multiple choice questions. For most people, family has a great deal of meaning. In fact, 7 in 10 Americans mention their family as a source of meaning and fulfillment. And a similar share said the same thing on the, on the multiple choice questions. This is what's interesting. Overall, look at the survey as a whole, only 20% of Americans say that religion or faith is the most meaningful aspect of their lives. Now, that might not be alarming to some people. That, that might actually be what you would have thought or guessed. But doesn't it suggest something to us? That maybe we live in a culture that idolizes marriage and family. That put marriage and family even before the one who gives us marriage and family. Finding meaning in life is incredibly important. It orients us, it stabilizes us, it, it strengthens us, uh, particularly when we find ourselves tossed to and fro. But finding meaning in the right things, in the right order, is also important. It's not that family is unimportant, it's that God is more important. Last week, as we were thinking about Philippians 3, 1 to 11, our sermon had three points. We saw the command in verse 1 to rejoice in the Lord, to, to find our happiness in the Lord. And then we saw Paul's uh, instructions about how he does that. And it began with putting no confidence in the flesh, not boasting in our former lives and former achievements. And then he went on to say instead, number three, that there's a way of counting, a divine calculus where Christ is seen as of exceeding worth, exceeding value compared to knowing and loving anything else. Where well, our text this morning really gives us the, the fourth step in prizing Christ above all things. And you might put it this way. That not only do we remember to rejoice in Christ and put no confidence in the flesh and consider Jesus better than everything else, but then number four, as a consequence of all of that, we press toward the prize of Christ Jesus. That's how we find both joy and meaning in life. It is by pressing into Christ and the things of Christ above everything else. 
Our text this morning has an interesting kind of structure, and this structure helps to make the points pretty clear. It's, it's called parallelism. You notice in, in these verses that Paul basically repeats two ideas, and, and with each repetition, he extends it a little bit. So you see there in the beginning of verse 12, he says, I'm not there yet. It's not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, right? And then he follows it with the second thought. Even though he's not there yet, he, he presses on to, to take hold of that for which Christ has taken hold of him. He repeats the same idea again in, in the next sentences or two. He says, I'm not there yet. And then he says, I press on. This one thing I do is forgetting what's behind and straining forward toward what lies ahead. I, 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 I press, I, I run toward the prize. You see that there? He does the same thing in verses 15 and 16, except this time he, he switches it just a little bit. And he says, we may not be there in agreement yet. Verse 15, if any of you think otherwise. But nevertheless, hold on. Verse 16, hold on to what you've attained. That structure, that parallelism, that repeating is drawing our eye to these basic points. And if you're taking notes, this is the outline for this morning. For meaning and joy in life, there are three things we wish to do. Number one, we need to admit that I ain't arrived yet. I ain't arrived yet. I ain't there yet. And number two, we need to resolve, though, that I ain't finished yet. That I'm not finished yet. And then number three, we need to declare that I ain't messing around either. And I ain't playing games either. I ain't there yet. I ain't finished yet. I ain't playing games either. Philippians chapter 3 verses 12 to 16. These are the divinely inspired words of God. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if, any, if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only... Let us hold true to what we have attained. Joy and meaning begin with this admission. I ain't arrived yet. We see that they're repeated in verse 12 and 13. Paul begins by saying, not that I have already attained this or am already perfect. And then a little bit later, he says, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. Now, we need to clarify what these, these pronouns are, this and it. What's, what's Paul have in mind here? Well, in one word, it's perfection, Christian perfection. But we need to be clear about what he means by this perfection. He doesn't mean human perfection, as if you and I are able to go from being imperfect beings to somehow, through moral reform and a little practice and getting things better, we somehow arrive at being perfect human beings. The Bible never teaches perfectionism. We ain't going to arrive like that. 
We ain't going to make it that way. What he has in mind is something quite different. What he has in mind is Christ's perfection. He has not obtained the perfection that is in Jesus Christ and that is our reward. To see that clearly, notice, remember what he talked about in verses 12 to 16. Or excuse me, verses 1 to 11. Remember, 12 to 16 is continuing that train of thought in verses 1 to 11. And again, you remember in verse 1, Paul told them to rejoice in the Lord. Then it reminds them to, to, that they are the real circumcision. And part of what that means is that they, they worship by the Spirit of God and they exalt. They, again, find their joy and their gladness in Christ. And Paul explains in verses 4 to 6, now, for that to really happen to its fullest, you, you have got to now put no confidence in the flesh. You can't be looking at your life and boasting in what you have done. But Christ has to be your boast. And then he says in, in verses 8 to 11 that, that, that what he, he's after some things. He wants to gain Christ. He wants to know Christ. He wants to share in his resurrection, even becoming like him in his death. So for Paul, the notion of perfection, Christian perfection, is being molded more and more to the likeness of Christ and knowing more and more deeply who Christ is and what Christ has done for him. And so when Paul says, I haven't obtained this, he's saying there is more to know about Jesus and more to obtain in Jesus, to enjoy in Jesus, than I have yet achieved. And that's true of all of us, beloved. When Paul thinks about all that may be had in Christ... All the growth, all the sanctification, all the joy, all the righteousness, all the identification with Jesus in his death and his resurrection. He says, I ain't there yet. I haven't obtained this. I'm not perfect yet. I ain't arrived. Now, I want you to notice something about this. These two statements, the two times and the two ways he says this. The, the first time he says this, he, he simply states the fact. Not that I have obtained this or am already perfect. The second time he states, he, he zeroes in not so much on the fact, but on the psychology. On his way of thinking. He says, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. He says, I've not arrived, fact, and I ain't tripping like I think I've arrived. Psychology. His psychology matches his reality. Well, well, see, some people say I ain't arrived yet, but they act like they have. I spend a fair amount of time in airports, uh, both for my travel and my wife's travel. I love when she's gone somewhere and is coming home, I love to pick her up from the airport I like to get there early, park the car in the garage, go inside and wait for her to come out the gates. I don't want to just be picking her up curbside like I'm some taxi. It's my wife, right? I want to, I want to see her. And when, she, and when she comes through the airport, she's arrived. You know what I mean? <laughs> Only one in color. Everybody else is black and white, right? <laughs> Trying to model some things for you brothers. But... And while I'm waiting on it, I like the people watch. That's right. And there are at least three kinds of people who come out the airport <laughs> off the plane. It's people who arrive and they look lost. <laughs> they, they looking for signs and 
they the ones you tripping over their luggage because they zigzagging in the aisle, you know, walking all slow. They, they just lost, right? <laughs> and there's some people who come out and they tired. They look like they've been on a red eye or they have about four or five connections and it's the walking dead, man. They just, you know, putting one foot in front of the other, coming on out. But now every once in a while, there's some people who come out the airport like they done arrived. Like somebody announced it on the airport speaker, the eagle has landed, right? And, and they walk out, strike a pose. You know, they hit a corner and they on a Paris runway. You know, they come out, they come out and they expect you to be sitting over there golf clapping, right? You know. And there's some people who call themselves Christians who show up like that in the church. And like the sun don't rise until they open their eyes in the morning, Right? And Paul says, now, listen, not only have I not arrived, I'm aware of it. I'm not pretending otherwise. You know, Christians who act like they've arrived make me nervous. It's dangerous because pride goes before fall and a haughty look before destruction. Now, we only think we've arrived if, in fact, we are we're not struggling with, we're failing with pride. Or we only think we arrived if we have some at least low-level notion of Christian perfectionism which drives us to a kind of hypocrisy of wearing the mask as if we got it all together. It'd be better for the church to just show up and be as raggedy as we really are. To be just as incomplete as we really are. And to be honest and transparent about it. Brother told me this morning, said, oh, you, you represent Anacostia High School real hard this morning. I was like, no, brother, I got up late this morning. <laughs> uh, I put on what was easy. I ain't making no statement, right? We just really just need to be real about things, right? Because here's the thing. If, if Paul can say of himself that he ain't arrived yet. Beloved, we ain't either. This is the apostle. And if Paul can say he ain't got all of Jesus that he wants to have, then beloved, we ain't either. And if we do, we tripping. We tripping. See, ultimately, the proud man and the perfectionistic man is a blind man. He doesn't see his own heart. And he don't see the distance between himself and Jesus. This is why when he reads the Bible, he's always the hero in what he's reading. When he sees a scene with Jesus in it and other people who don't get it, he feels closer to Jesus than he does to people who don't get it. Because he doesn't know his own heart. Doesn't know his own life. Doesn't know how wide is the distance between Jesus and us. See, ultimately, admitting that we ain't there yet is freeing. It, it's bondage to be pretending. It, it's slavery to try to put on a mask and act like you got together all the time and to be monitoring what you said and haven't said and how you said it and whether or not it left the right effect. It's freeing to just show up jacked up. You know? So questions, questions. Can you and I honestly admit 
that we haven't arrived yet. Amen. And let me push that a little bit further. Can you and I specifically name some important ways that we haven't arrived yet? We need to be conscious of the gap between us and Jesus and all that we have in Jesus. Because that consciousness, that awareness of the gap breeds humility and it focuses our pursuit. If you ask somebody, you know, the question I like to ask them sometimes, you know, is there something about Jesus that you would like to know better? Oftentimes, people not used to being asked a question like that, they, they get sort of blank, right? I don't know, that's a deep question. What that indicates, it's not that that's a wrong answer because we want to show up jacked up, right? That's just an honest answer, I don't know. That, nothing wrong with that answer. But what it indicates is maybe we haven't been thinking deeply enough about our hearts and about the Lord and about what we should be growing in, in the knowledge of Christ. So can we get specific? Because if we can get specific, we can also get focused. So, are you there yet? Because there's a fourth group that shows up at airports. Those are people you see in airports who've got a connection to make. They know they ain't reached their destination yet. And they're walking with purpose to the next gate. Or maybe they have arrived at the airport, but they got to get that cab to get to the meeting on time. We want to be those persons who walk out of the airport or walking through life knowing we've got a connection to make, knowing that we ain't there yet. We've got a, a destination that we're trying to arrive at, and we want to be focused and purposed on getting there. So the first thing for our freedom, for our joy, for our meaning in life is simply to admit, I ain't arrived. And to be clear about how. Here's the second thing. But then we want to resolve that we ain't finished yet. See there, Paul says, but, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Well, he says there, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You see the but in those two verses? Each time Paul says, I ain't there yet, he follows it with, but, but I ain't finished yet. We know this saying, don't we? I ain't what I used to be. I ain't what I'm going to be. And some of us say, praise God, I don't look like what I've been through, right? <laughs> so Paul is in this in-between. He ain't what he used to be, and he's not what he's going to be, but he is pressing forward. He's in this in-between, admitting imperfection, but he is not admitting defeat. The race ain't over. Notice Paul's strategy. It's really simple. It's, it's caught up in, in one image, in one word. Paul presses on. He presses. Paul says he, he, he presses on. He, he pushes through. He, he fights his way through the obstacles, uh, fights his way through hindrances and, and distractions and entrapments in the world. He, he just keeps pressing toward the goal. There's some things in life that you can't get unless you press. We, we know this in the gym, don't we? Well, some of y'all, I don't know. They tell me you got to press the weight. You got to put some resistance on it. And, and it's in the pressing that the, the muscle mass is built. 
right? And you got to keep pressing. Now, that's why I don't go to the gym, because you just like pressing all the time for nothing, right? <laughs> we got to keep on pushing. It's like Paul was alive in the 60s and heard the impressions. Keep on pushing. Dun, 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 dun. Keep on pushing. That's for y'all's time. I know Miss Carol with me. <laughs> All right. The impression says I got to keep on pushing. Huh? I can't stop now. Dun, 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 dun. Move up a little higher. <laughs> Some way, somehow. <laughs> Paul would have that record on loop. But he gets it from Jesus. Remember what our Lord says in, in Luke 16, verse 16. Jesus says there, the law and the prophets were until John. Then he says this, since then the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. The way into the kingdom is not a gentle downhill roll. It's a strenuous press uphill into the things of Christ, into the things of the kingdom, into the things of the, of the gospel. And Paul knew this right from his conversion. You remember when Paul was converted in Acts chapter 9 and he'd been stricken blind. He's, he, he knows that the Lord has met him on that road to Damascus and, and the Lord speaks to a man named Ananias. And he tells Ananias to go to Paul, explain to Paul what's happened and things of that sort. And part of what, what the Lord says to Ananias that, that he's going to tell Paul, he says this, I need to tell Paul how many things he must suffer for my name. Paul needs to know he's going to have to keep on pressing. He's going to have to keep on pushing. And Christian, you and I need to know that. We got to keep on pressing. We got to keep on pushing. This is what makes so damnable that false teaching that to become a Christian means you're just going to prosper and life's going to be a primrose path. It's not. And a lot of folks then, when they sort of hit suffering, they, they're rocked in their faith because they've been told some false promises. That life's going to get easy. It's going to be gravy all the time. No, the Bible says all those who will be godly people that follow Jesus will suffer persecution. The Bible says in this world, you're going to have conflict. But take heart, Christ has overcome the world. The Bible says that the kingdom is taken by force. We have to press into it. Narrow is the way that leads to life. Amen. You can have Christ, but you're going to have to press to him. Amen. You're going to have to push on. Many of us are sports fans, and in athletic tournaments and competitions, you have something called a buy team gets a bye week. That means they don't have to play another team. They just get to go on to the next round. Beloved, ain't no buys in Christianity. <laughs> Salvation is free, but you don't get to take a day off. You don't have a bye week. We got to compete and press every day because Christ is worth it. But now notice something else. Why, why Paul chooses this as a strategy, and it's, it's right there in verse 12, he presses to make it his own, to make Christ his own, because Christ Jesus has already made Paul his own. 
Paul says, now, when, when you're owned by Jesus, you want to own Jesus in return. And this is the joy of our struggle. We do not struggle in order that Christ might one day become ours. We, we struggle and press because we are already owned by Christ. That he is already ours. It's out of the confidence and the, and the comfort of knowing that, that Jesus has laid hold of us. That we seek to go on and lay hold of Christ. This is what the gospel tells us, that we have been bought with a price. We've already been purchased. And that price is the blood of the Son of God, shed on Calvary's cross for the washing away, the remission, the forgiveness of our sins. He suffered and died and was buried to atone for our guilt and our wrong. And he was raised on the third day for our righteousness and for our eternal life. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, claims now everyone and keeps everyone who places their faith in him. And if you have faith in Christ, even weak, fledgling, oftentimes battered faith in Christ, it's because... Jesus has already laid hold of you. You see, the wonderful thing about admitting our imperfection is, again, even when it comes to faith, it, it just needs to be a mustard seed. It doesn't need to be great, gigantic, stupendous, world-altering faith. Just a, just a mustard seed of faith. Faith with questions, faith with doubts, faith with anger, faith with disappointment, faith mixed up with a whole lot of things that are a result of a fallen world. But faith nonetheless is evidence that you didn't go get Jesus, Jesus came and got you. And it's the basis then for pressing on to getting more of Christ. Laying hold of him because he's already laid hold of you. Listen, if Christ has laid hold of you, you might as well press on to lay hold of him because you can't get out of his hand. You can't escape his love. You're not going to dodge his grace. You know how good Jesus' grip is on you? you? You can lose your mind if you want to, but he still got you. You can start tripping and flipping and acting a fool if you want to, but he, he still got you. And if he has laid hold of you, oh man, the best thing for you to do is to turn and lay hold of him too. Press on. Press on. This is what the Bible tells us. John, 1 John 4, verse 19. We love him because he first loved us. It's a wonderful, freeing thing when you can just say, you know what? My love for God is imperfect, but his love for me is perfect. And my weak love does not threaten his love because he loved me first. He loved me first. Chase me down. Kind of like Christy did when we were dating. I have in my notes right here, called to repent and believe. <laughs> it's a joyful thing, beloved, that Christ has loved us. 
and pursued us and nothing will separate us from his love. And if you're here this morning, you're not yet a Christian. You can be. And if you're here this morning, you're not yet a Christian. You're wondering, well, it, does God love me? Has he loved me? Is it that personal? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And the proof that he loves you is that his son died for you. While you were still a sinner, while you were still jacked up, and you're still a sinner right now if you're not a Christian. Right now, jacked up, messed up, running away from God, Jesus has died for you to pay the penalty for your sins, to make you new, to wash you, make you whole, and bring you to the God who loves you. Call upon his name. Repent of your sins. Place your faith in him. Say, Lord, save me. Make me your own. It's the one prayer Christ will always answer. Call upon his name that you may be saved. God is still saving and he's still keeping and you may be saved and kept by him. Escaping the wrath of hell to live forever in his love. Call upon the name of the Lord that you might be saved. So Paul says, listen, my one strategy is to press on. And the reason I choose that strategy is because Jesus has already laid hold to me. Now look then at his method. How does he press on? How does he work that out? Really by, by two things. Number one, verse 13, he forgets what lies behind. He forgets what lies behind. Success in the Christian life depends a great deal on learning how to forget the right things. Success in the Christian life depends a great deal on learning how to forget the right things. That's true when it comes to something like forgiveness. Some of us struggle to forgive because we don't want to forget. And that's true when it comes to something like attaining more of Christ, as Paul is talking about right here. Specifically, we must forget what lies behind us. And, and what lies behind us are two things, our sin and our righteousness. Now, we're used to talking about forgetting the sin. And we need to if we've forgiven in Christ. It's been washed away. It's been nailed to the cross. We don't bear it anymore. We are living beneath our Christian heritage if we are living with the dreadful reminder and remembrance of our sin. Amen. It is finished. Amen. It is nailed to the cross. We do not bear it anymore. God has removed from us as far as the east is from the west. He has removed and separated us from our sin. God. And some of us need to know that in the gospel to forget that. But we also need to forget our righteousness. That's what Paul was really listing in verses 4 to 6 or 4 to 7. All the ways that he could boast in his flesh. And, and, and some of us need to know that that life of righteousness apart from Christ, that's behind us too. We weren't all that. And even if we were, we weren't all that. We don't have any reasons to boast before God. There'll be no boasting in the presence of God about what we did in our flesh, what kinds of great things we do as Christians, or what kinds of great lives we had even before Christ. All of that, Paul says, is rubbish. Put it behind you. Because there's something far better in front of you. We want to live the Christian life facing forward. 
toward the goal, the prize of, of Christ. And to do that, we've got to forget the old life altogether. It's what it means that we have been born again and we are new creations. I love the story of missionary Amy Carmichael. I may have told this before. Forgive me if I have. I just really like this, this little anecdote. Amy Carmichael was a missionary on the mission field, building orphanages and evangelizing uh, among the people group that she was sent to. And at some point in her ministry, there was a sharp falling out with another worker. And in that falling out, they kind of went their separate ways. Things weren't resolved immediately. And the story's told that some years later, uh, Amy Carmichael meets this, this worker at some kind of meeting or a conference or something. And the worker kind of sheepishly comes up to her and, and says, hey, you know, do you, do you remember me? And Amy's like, yes. And uh, do you remember that we, we had this falling out? And Amy Carmichael's response was, I distinctly remember forgetting it. See, forgetting isn't a passive thing that just happens with time in the Christian life. The kind of forgetting we're talking about right here is an active thing. A resolution not to allow the past to affect our perspective and conduct now and in the future. We want to distinctly remember forgetting our sin and our righteousness apart from Christ, so that we might be free to press on. That's one part of pressing on. Listen, your history is meant to be a guidepost, not a hitching post. You're not meant to be tied down to your history. Your history and my history is meant to help us focus more on our future and running the path that's set before us. So part one here is forgetting what's behind. Part two is straining forward to what lies ahead. And what lies ahead? Paul tells us it's the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The man loves prepositional sort of phrases, doesn't he? It's the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And Paul here has in mind an athletic metaphor. He has in mind perhaps the Olympic races. This, this straining forward is the Olympic runner hitting the tape hard, crossing the finish line with, with, with speed and, and with strength. That's what he's doing. He's, he's straining for the goal for the finish line. Why? Because at the finish line is where you get the prize. At the finish line is where you get the prize. And here I think Paul would really have a whole lot of shade on current Little League athletics where everybody get a trophy. You can get no participation trophies. You got to finish. You got to hit the tape. You got to cross the line. And some folks in the Christian life want a trophy just for coming to class, just for coming to church. Now you don't get no trophy for coming to church. Listen, we trying to get somewhere. We ain't arrived yet and we ain't finished yet. We're striving, we're, we're pressing on, we're running the race. This is what Paul says of himself near the end of his life in 2 Timothy 4, 7. He says, I have finished the race. And so much of Paul's sort of ministry and, and sanctification borrows on sports metaphors. Remember what he says in, in 1 Corinthians, that he runs this race without distraction. And he's like a boxer 
but not just swinging wildly in the air. He's like a boxer who, who disciplines himself, who brings his flesh under control that he might fight with discipline. That's what the Christian life is like. We press toward this goal, toward this prize, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What is that? I think finally, Paul is looking to the day of the resurrection. And that day when all of our faith will be transformed into sight. And as John says in 1 John 3, seeing Christ, we will become like him. He's looking forward to that day when all of our knowledge of God is not merely knowledge of God, but has become experience with God. That all of our understanding of the gospel has not just been intellectual understanding of the gospel, but we do experience ourselves sharing in his suffering and sharing in the power of his resurrection and becoming like him in his death. He's looking forward to that day where our transformation is finally and complete. He began in Philippians chapter 1, around verse 6, saying, He's sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will complete it on the day of Christ Jesus. Now he's looking at the day of Christ Jesus. And he's saying, when we hit the tape, we get the prize. So press on. Persevere. Don't quit. Don't shrink back. Don't fall back. And this is meant to be our strategy in the Christian life, in the in-between. As we recognize that we ain't there yet, and then we pursue what we've not yet finished with yet. And so these are the questions. As, as Christians, what's our goal in life? What's your goal in life? Uh, to make it more probing, perhaps, what goal is really guiding and empowering your life? Because we're not after the Sunday school answer. We all know that we should now, by now in this point in the sermon, we should say, oh, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Yeah, okay. Amen. But is that what's really motivating you, guiding you? Is that what's drawing your energy and your attention and your effort? Or is it something else? Are we really running forward to that call? Or are we looking backwards? The old life. You do recall that folks who look backwards turn into salt, don't they? Remember what our Lord Jesus says in Luke 9, 62, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. You can't go forwards looking backwards. We are meant to get the kingdom in front view and press toward it. So beloved, forget what lies behind and strain forward to the prize. Uh, the sins that entangled you and snared you, the, the, the wrestling matches with, with doubt and questions, um, the, the, the relationships that have, have been broken and need fixing. Put them behind you and strain toward Christ. And here's the wonderful thing about the efficiency of God's kingdom. If you and I strain toward Christ, 
If we seek first the kingdom of God, he has a way of straightening out the stuff that's behind and giving us all the things we need along with the kingdom. Seek the kingdom. Seek Christ. Strain forward. And on that day, you'll look back and it'll be as if your path were straight. Which brings us to our final thing. We need to make another declaration, a final declaration. We ain't playing around. We're not letting go. We're not allowing ourselves to be distracted. See that there in verses 15 and 16. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only hold true to what you have attained. The thing we see in verse 14 is that not everyone is where Paul is in his thinking. Paul has made his case for how the Christian life ought to be lived. He has made it clear where his joy lies. Christ is his passion. That's what he focuses on. And out of that, no matter his circumstance, he's able to rejoice. He even makes it clear that his way in verse verse 15 here is the mature way. See there? Let those of us who are mature, who've grown a bit in Christ, think this way. So it's as if Paul is saying, now what you ain't going to do is get me arguing with you about it. What, what you ain't about to do in here is distract me from my pursuit of Christ and my joy in Christ. He says, look, look, if in anything you think otherwise, I'm going to let God sort that out for you. God will reveal that to you. Also, he says, I'm going to leave you to God. This is the by Felicia of the letter. (laughs) And it's helpful. It's helpful because it shows that not every difference of opinion needs a fight to the death. If some Christians think differently about pursuing Christ and how they pursue Christ, that's fine. Walk through Philippians 3. Teach them. Share, share out of your own life, out of your own passion, the way, the way Paul does right here. Then leave them to the God they trust. Who is better able to sort out their thinking and to fix the misplaced things of their heart than you and I are. We shepherd to the truth. We, we teach to the truth, but we can't force the truth on folk. We can't force a change of mind. And in humility, we go back to point one. We ain't there yet. That's still stuff God teaching us. That's one of the ways we act like we've arrived. We show up and we know something a little bit more than somebody else. And we act like there ain't nothing we know, don't know now. That's right. We act like the circumference of our ignorance is about that big. When actually that's about what we know and the rest of the universe is... So look, look at what Paul does here. Here's the great apostle. He says, I done laid bare to you my own biography. I've laid bare to you the teaching about Christ. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you, this is the way mature people ought to think about this. But you know what? If you ain't there yet, God will reveal it to you. God will help you. God will show you some things. I'm going to step back. 
because I ain't messing around. I'm running after mine. Sometimes Christians feel more threatened by others not getting it than they do about their own distractions. Paul keeps himself from distractions and he leaves others to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. And he leaves with this final exhortation in verse 16. Only hold true to what you have attained. So when he says now, I'm going to leave you with God, he's not being petty. He's not being unkind. He's just saying, listen, God's going to have to straighten some things out for you, but let me leave you with this exhortation. What you do think you have, don't let it go. Don't let it go. Hold fast to it. In the final analysis, we want to keep every inch of ground that we gain in Christ. We don't want to be moving backwards. We don't want to have a a slack-handed grip on things. We want to hold true. We want to hold tight. We want to hold fast to whatever progress we have made in Christ. Think of it as a military battle. We're invading the enemy's territory. Once we win a city, what do we do? Well, we set up our defenses and we, we bring in the, the rest of the troops to, to garrison that city, to protect it, to, to maintain it. Because we don't want to lose the ground that we've captured. Right. And that's a good rule of thumb in Christian sanctification. As best we are able, we don't want to capture the same ground twice. So we hold tight to what we have. And that's, what, that's true in Jesus. Don't be lackadaisical about growth. Don't be lackadaisical about joy. Don't be nonchalant about meaning. Don't, don't be sort of, eh, about purpose. Lay hold to Christ and keep whatever you gain. Store it up, rehearse it, build on it, protect it. Because this is right. My friend Ken Sandy with Peacemaker Ministries used to say, Christians leak. We do. Christians leak. Things are poured into us and there are holes in the bottom of our boat or our bucket. And some of that stuff just kind of leaks out and we, we forget We need to plug the holes in our memories and in our living so we hold true to what we have attained in Christ. I think this is why in verse 1 of chapter 3, Paul also says, for to me to tell you again, you know, to remind you of what I taught, to teach you again, it's no trouble for me and it's safe for you. Repetition helps us hold on. So, maybe we should stop here with a couple of application questions. First question is this. How do we learn to think maturely? How do we learn to think maturely? Well, the simple answer here is we study God's Word and we put it into practice. Most Christians slip into measuring their spiritual maturity with a formula that kind of combines how long they've been a Christian and how well they speak Christianese. So they've gotten used to the speech of the church. And because they can speak that language and have been in the church for a minute, they just kind of go, okay, I'm mature now. No, no, no. There's some 40-year-old Christians who are babes in Christ. Right? Maturity is measured by being mastered by the book. 
having our thoughts and our perspective and our affections shaped by and determined by God's Word and, and by God's grace living according to what the Word teaches. Amen. That's maturity. And this is why Paul says in him, hey, let those of you who are mature think this way. And, and that's the thing. It begins with thinking. We will never be mature in any aspect if we're unthinking. Amen. You don't drift toward maturity. You don't get maturity by osmosis. Amen. We don't grow up into Christ by chance. No, the best way to grow is to give attention to what produces growth. And that's God's word. And practice it. In fact, the Bible says itself says we're infants if we don't learn his word and, and apply it. But we're philosophers if we do. Secondly, how then do we hold on to what we've learned? Well, we put it into practice. The act of practicing strengthens our grip on the truth. Learn the truth, practice it. Learn the truth, preach it to yourself. Amen. Learn the truth, apply it. Obey the truth. And in that, in that act of practice, we, we strengthen our grip because we keep performing that truth over and over and over again. And, and add to your practice fellowship. Christianity is not a solo sport. Amen. It's not the kind of life that we are meant to be lived alone. If we isolate ourselves, then we do two things. We, the Proverbs say we isolate ourselves for our sin, or we isolate ourselves in such a way that the enemy and his sniper has a clearer shot on us. Protection is found in the flock. Safety is found among the sheep. Growth and maturity, too, happens as we fellowship with each other, as each joint, Ephesians 4, supplies to the other joints what's needed for growth. So you, you, you want to grow in maturity and hold on to what you have? Build meaningful spiritual relationships with other Christians. Fight the war with your company. Stay in the flock. So Christians ought to be plugged in on at least three levels. Uh, Christians ought to be plugged into the membership of the entire church. That should be meaningful to them and, and lived out in such a way that, that this whole fellowship is and feels indispensable to our maturity and our growth. Yeah. And then Christians ought to be plugged into smaller groups of fellowship, whether those are friendship networks in the church or small group fellowship or a men's fellowship, women's fellowship, and in smaller clusters too. We ought to be coming closer to each other, teaching each other, building each other up, helping each other run the race and not fall on the wayside. And we ought to be plugged in one-on-one. -on -one. We ought to have some close, personal, individual friendships. Our lives ought to follow the pattern of Christ. Uh, we're his body. He fellowships with us here. Yet he had 12 disciples that, that, that he built with in a small group. And yet he had three among those disciples who were particularly close to him. And so we need one, two, or three Pauls and Barnabases in our lives that really know our lives, with whom we open our lives. We, we ought to seek to be known and to know one another. Amen. That's how we help each other. One of our M's, our five M's, is that we want to shepherd each other to maturity. Well, that's going to require proximity. 
that's going to require the elimination of anonymity. It's going to require that we know each other and that we're known and that we see the value in that for our growth in Christ. That's how we don't play church, but become the church. We have not arrived yet. We are not finished yet. And hopefully we are not playing around. Uh, We are holding fast to what we have and pressing toward the mark. Those are the three declarations that help us pursue Christ with meaning and joy and to find our delight in him. We're going to have a moment of silence after we hear this song. I pray that you might, in that moment of silence, talk to your Lord. Perhaps call on him for the first time to to give you saving faith and to rescue you from your sin. Or pay attention to that still, small voice you've been hearing during the sermon, pointing things out to you personally. And hold fast to what you have gained. Let's pray together. Father, we pray indeed that you would help us to rejoice in our imperfections. There are many. And we will not attain perfection until you come. So make us a church free from pretending. Transparent, vulnerable, wise in building relationships and in sharing, but genuine, true, And help us to observe the ways in which we are are not yet perfected in our knowledge of Christ and our fellowship with Him. To perhaps journal them, to note them, so that we might observe, O Lord, where and how You would want us to grow. And please, Lord, keep us from being too proud to think that we we don't need to grow. Grant us grace and humility to press toward Christ knowing that he's already laid hold of us. And in the press, we get more of him. Help us, O Lord, to run the race before us, we pray. Give us grace and strength. In Jesus' name, amen.